Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Lane Davis, and I'm your host for today's podcast. Today, I have the privilege of talking with Nicholas Pruitt, Assistant Professor of Humanities at Eastern Nazarene College, about his new book, Open Hearts, Closed Doors, Immigration Reform and the Waning of Mainline Protestantism, published by New York University Press. The book uncovers the largely overlooked role that mainline Protestant churches and their leaders had in developing concepts of cultural pluralism in America in the 20th century through missionary work and legislative activism. Dr. Pruitt, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to New Books in History. Uh, Thank you, Lane. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. So first question, the title of your book, I think, frames the argument you're making really well. Explain to us what it means that mainline Protestants in the 20th century often had open hearts towards immigrants and displaced persons, but were often more reluctant to fully open the doors of the nation to those seeking a new home. Sure. Yes. Um, So, yeah, the argument uh, is that uh, as we often like to say in history, it's messy, it's complicated. And um, my kind of target uh, subjects were white Protestants in America, especially those who identify with some of the leading Protestant uh, denominations or groups uh, within the nation. And uh, once I started researching and looking, I uh, discovered um, some openness and even some moderate to progressive views on, say, um, immigration reform, uh, even multiculturalism at times. But uh, there were definitely limits to that. And those limitations are often tied to uh, white Protestants still wanting to maintain a nation where they maintain their, um, their kind of cultural hegemony, as many historians say. And um, want to, as, as I discussed, they still want to be cultural gatekeepers. So they want um, immigration and uh, a multicultural or diverse nation on their own terms. Uh, and so it's a uh, back and forth um, throughout the book. Um, but my hope is to, yeah, kind of complicate how we view um, white uh, Protestants, especially those tied to these mainline traditions uh, within the 20th century. Now, the the main groups you look at are the mainline Protestants, which generally get defined as sort of the the seven sisters. I always leave one out when I try and name them. But but basically, Methodists, Episcopalians, Congregationalists, Presbyterians. You also include Southern Baptists, though, which um, uh, may may have been an interesting choice. Uh, What what, what was sort of your criteria for for the, the groups that you looked at? Sure. Yeah, I I looked at, we do have some uh, religious census material in the early 20th century. And so I looked at, you know, which groups were, in terms of membership, were more numerically predominant. And uh, and so I, I picked, yeah, the top four, three or four uh, of those. Um, 
And then I included Southern Baptist, uh, and I make the disclaimer in the book, uh, obviously they should not be identified as mainline Protestant. Uh, they uh, definitely don't collaborate in um, in uh, work, uh, ecumenical work uh, with other uh, more moderate to progressive leaning Protestants, but because of their numerical predominance, I mean, by the, the mid to late 20th century, they are the largest Protestant denomination in, um, in the United States. And so, and the fact that they, especially in the, the South, Southwest, um, even Southeast maintain important kind of, um, cultural, power, uh, uh, basically. And so I, I felt like I definitely needed to include them. Um, I was doing graduate work um, in Texas at the time at Baylor University, so I also had uh, uh, good access to Southern Baptist sources down there. Uh, and so I decided to include them in the project. Excellent. Well, I thought it was a good choice. It really made the the narrative sort of uh, much wider than it might have otherwise been. So um, yeah, e- excellent work. Uh, the, the book follows a chronological narrative. So I'll kind of stick to that in asking some questions. Um, you write that in the 1920s that Protestants supported uh, vibrant home mission programs for immigrant communities. Uh, and that that activism actually helped to temper, though it certainly didn't eliminate, uh, nativist sentiments uh, in the pews. I- explain exactly how that worked during that time period, if you can. Oh, sure, definitely. Uh, I think that's a great question. I I think, um, this is just a plug here, I think home missions are one of the most overlooked piece, uh, topics in uh, American religion and cultural history. I think it's there's a lot more work that needs to be done there in um, kind of dissecting and analyzing uh, home mission programs that really run the gamut. Uh, they are addressing so many different um, ethnic, racial, uh, cultural, national groups within the nation and uh, speak a lot to yeah, how white Protestants who are running these missions programs, how they perceive um, uh, these, uh, what, who they consider outsiders, basically, uh, at the time. So I think it's a really rich source material. And I, uh, there has been some small uh, gains there in the historiography. But uh, yeah, I felt like I had a pretty um, open door here to look at uh, home missions, but especially mission programs that were targeting immigrants and, um, and then later displaced people and refugees as well. And so, um, yeah, I think they are a rich source material because uh, they really speak to the cultural commitments um, and the theological and spiritual commitments of these uh, Protestant mission home missionaries. And um, I, you know, make it clear. And I think most of us religious historians will recognize uh, there's never a strong dichotomy between. Uh, the sacred and the secular. Uh, and these home mission programs really blur um, uh, religious um, missional agendas with uh, cultural impulses. And uh, so, for instance, in the 20s, uh, assimilation and Americanization programs are predominant, um, not only in religious circles, but uh, social service circles as well throughout the nation, as the nation is um, making adjustments and responding to the um, millions of new immigrants coming from the turn of the 20th century. And um, so these Americanization and assimilation programs really speak a lot to how white Protestants define what it what they believe it 
is to be American and the hopes and expectations they place upon um, people migrating to the United States. Now, one argument I make, and it's it's not a new argument, there are uh, historians who have made this argument in other contexts as well, and that is just the formative role of missions, uh, whether it's foreign or home missions. Um, oftentimes, missionaries go through a transition. Once they start uh, living and immersing themselves in other cultures, um, it's not always the case, but in some cases, they grow more tolerant or more open to accepting uh, kind of a multicultural understanding. And, and I found a similar trajectory in uh, many of the sources I looked at. Um, there is a really an intense evangelistic uh, mission for sure to convert uh, immigrants to these Protestant uh, traditions. But there is this kind of growing respect for, um, yeah, the cultural cultures, even the languages that are brought over uh, within these immigrant communities. And these Protestant missionaries are really trying to navigate the complexities of assimilation or cultural retention and uh, presenting their Christian message um, in that context. And so obviously nativism, as, as you pointed out in the book, is not um, wiped out entirely. I mean, that, that is a long tradition among white Protestants that they're you know, still uh, working to um, to relinquish, but um, I think there are uh, some meager steps made uh, during this time to at least understand uh, and respect cultural diversity. Religious diversity, however, is another issue, <laughs> um, and I try to make that distinction in the book. Uh, these home missionaries are much more comfortable with cultural diversity, not so much with religious diversity, because they still think of the United States as a Protestant uh, nation, in essence. Yeah, well, and we'll get into some of that, too, I think. Now, in your, your third chapter, you title it The, the Trying Thirties. Um, it was a period when uh, social gospel principles were diffusing through Protestant congregations. Explain what that process means, the, the diffusion process of social gospel principles into mainline Protestantism uh, during that time. Sure. Yeah, that's um, my, my book in part is meant to be a contribution to immigration history, but it's also my attempt at, um, yeah, providing some contributions to uh, religious history, especially the history of mainline uh, liberal progressive traditions in the United States. And so, um, yeah, especially chapters two, uh, two and three, I get into the social gospel and I you know, maybe start wading through some of the theology um, and uh, hopefully the religious historians really check in there and maybe the immigration historians tend to kind of, you know, check out at that point. But um, yeah, I, I had some things I wanted to say about these religious traditions, the, the main white mainline Protestants. And um, as we know, the, the social gospel movement uh, there at the turn of the 20th century, uh, largely um, kind of infusing um, a more uh, kind of uh, kingdom-centered, uh, liberal, uh, more modern take on theology, uh, but meant to address the structural and social problems of the day and uh, probably epitomized in the settlement house movement at the turn of the century. And um, yeah, what I trace is how those ideals, social gospel ideals of, of creating social justice, harmony, but also through a Christian lens in society, how those continue to um, 
be carried and practiced within these Protestant traditions. And oftentimes these ideas are interpreted by historians as um, being kind of at the upper crust of these denominations. So uh, leaders who are seminary trained, who've really bought into a more liberal or modernist theology, you know, they're the ones who really promote the social gospel. But the average person in the pew doesn't have that training, that background, and um, may have more of a disconnect. Now, what I'm arguing is these social gospel ideas kind of trickle down uh, over the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and are kind of repackaged by the laity sitting in the pews of these Protestant churches. And it doesn't look exactly like the social gospel written in the books of, say, a Walter Rauschenbusch or a Jane Addams, but um, there, uh, I really trace the lineage of certain terminology, like the brotherhood of man. That phrase, which you know, I would... Um, has a lot of historical origins, but uh, is an important commonplace phrase in the social gospel movement that continues to be used throughout these home missions materials, uh, even political statements. Um, you know, even President Harry Truman even uses that vocabulary in some of his speeches later on. Uh, so that that diffusion um, is basically my argument that these social gospel ideas. Um, they don't, they're not transferred in a pure form, but they do begin to be diffused or spread out through larger pockets of kind of white Protestant mainline traditions. And, um, and what that looks like is it is a, a weird kind of mixing of, of, of more kind of presentist, this worldly theology, trying to fix social problems and inequities today. But when the laity start grappling with those ideas, they're also firmly committed to a more traditional evangelistic approach as well. They don't dispense with trying to preach, you know, the gospel, the Christian tradition. And um, so that diffusion uh, means that those two ideals, social and evangelistic aspirations, that I wouldn't say they're wed, but they kind of work together and they're they're both kind of embraced by these home mission societies. You, I was fascinated looking at home missions records, pamphlets uh, from local churches, and oftentimes these are women's groups. And uh, my best example would be a, a Northern Baptist um, pamphlet, which I guess this was probably a little further ahead in the 1950s, but so it would have been American Baptist. But they, in the same pamphlet, they're talking about Riding your congressman, uh, advocating for immigration reform, um, uh, you know, working f- t- towards more liberal immigration policy. But in that same pamphlet, they're also saying, "Oh, and go find uh, someone who is um, an immigrant in your community and share Jesus Christ with them as well." Um, and so, I, for me, that really paints the picture of this kind of interplay of the social gospel and traditional evangelism uh, within mm. these groups. Yeah, it's really helpful. So, uh, so then to switch back to sort of the immigration part of this, uh, why were the 1930s a trying period for immigrant missions? Mm. Well, uh, probably the most obvious reason is immigration numbers themselves are drastically reduced. Um, this is in part due to the uh, restrictive laws that were passed in the 20s, but also due to this, the economic crisis of the 1930s. And at one point, we have more people leaving the country than entering um, in the in the kind of mid-30s. Um, so there are less 
um, people migrating, entering into the country. But uh, I do think that's a little complicated. That doesn't mean home missions to immigrants just end during that period, because in fact, you still have um, three or four decades prior where we had large numbers of immigrants coming into the United States. And those communities are still there and they still maintain um, cultural and kind of immigrant identities. And these Protestant missionaries are still recognizing their presence and working with them, even if further immigration is not really happening in the 1930s. Um, Another kind of twist or or layer to this would be uh, by the late 1930s, uh, we begin to see um, uh, particularly the uh, Jewish refugee crisis um, in Germany. And uh, we see a few, uh, not many, unfortunately, but a few Protestant voices identifying that refugee crisis and um, you know, wanting to see relief uh, provided to Jews and even some German Christians who are trying to uh, flee Nazi Germany. So there's a gr- growing awareness of refugee crises around the world, too. Right. I, I want to focus then on, on World War II uh, then. That, that produced an interesting period for, for Protestant immigrant missions that you note, um, because you, you note that toleration and unity were, were elevated together. And, and you have this quote, uh, you, you say, earlier concerns over immigrant hordes coming to dilute the Anglo-Saxon racial order in America dissipated as political ideologies were seen as the primary threat. Uh, and it's even resulted in some some initial challenges uh, to the American racial order that, that you talk about. So so discuss a, a little bit about this period and how Protestants balance those competing notions of toleration and, and unity. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Many sources at this time. And once again, I'm, I'm not the first historian to recognize this, but um, you know, many Americans in general are um, growing more and more concerned about um, you know, fascism and communism and socialism, um, which, you know, those, those have been concerns even prior to World War II, for sure. Um, but those, um, yeah, those are seen as the, kind of the primary threats to uh, the United States and its well-being and its identity. And um, this is, to be clear, this is not to say that um, racist uh, understandings, white supremacy uh, are kind of tossed by the wayside. Those are still uh, uh, very tragic currents, um, strong currents in American culture. But I I would say the attention of American society is more turned less to maybe um, uh, its ethnic, racial, national diversity within the nation and and focused more on these external threats like communism uh, and Hitler's Germany. And you even see some um, more openness to discussing American racism during and after World War II, especially once uh, various concentration camps are liberated and Americans begin to learn of the horrors of Nazi Germany and its racism and this concern of that we don't want to replicate that. Add to the fact that, uh, you know, the Soviet Union um, is also more than willing to point out uh, America's failures uh, in racism um, within the early Cold War right after World War II. Uh, And so I think I would argue and other historians argue there's kind of a a more growing um, recognition that uh, Americans need to confront um, their racist demons and the racist structures and practices and laws in the nation. 
Now, obviously, there are, you know, as civil rights historians will say, there are a lot more factors that go into play in that. Uh, but I do think uh, there is a, if you try to gain the social pulse of that time, cultural pulse, uh, people are more open to discussing um, race and racism in America. And uh, I find that many of my subjects, uh, particularly um, mainline leaders who are uh, at the forefront of these denominations or home mission societies or the National Council of Churches, um, they are yeah, fostering these conversations and they often try to lump things together and say, yeah, we, we want to address uh, racism in America, but racism not only directed towards African-Americans, but also against people of other national identities um, and occasionally even addressing anti-Semitism in America. Uh, and so, yeah, there's just, a, um, I think, uh, uh, more openness, especially people at the top of the, these denominations to address prejudice during the World War II era. Uh, it's becoming a more pertinent topic to them at the time, even though uh, I think we could all agree that they, they're, it's a little too too late and too short. Uh, they should have been addressing that much earlier, but World War II gives at least some momentum to those conversations. Right, right, exactly. Now, it seems that you suggest, and correct me if I get this wrong, but it seems that you suggest that the 1950s were largely a period of continuity in Protestant immigrant missions, though the context were, were certainly changing. Um, you talk about a new media environment, the rise of the Cold War, um, as well as some changing attitudes about pluralism. So give us an overview, if you will, of sort of what was happening in the 1950s and what uh, what immigrant missions looked like then. Sure. Well, one kind of impetus for this whole project itself is when I started this project uh, back in 2011, uh, the historiography largely kind of skips over, especially the history of immigration in America, um, really skips over this period. You know, people say, well, immigration ends in 1924 and is kind of revived in 1965 with Johnson's reforms. Um, but what I and what other, there are several other uh, important historians um, who have also uh, are drawing more attention to this period. It's a very formative period in um, not only policy, but American, uh, uh, especially white American uh, perceptions and responses to immigration. It doesn't, it's not put on halt during this era of restriction. There's a lot to be unpacked. And especially in the 1950s, um, not only are you seeing refugee uh, resettlement programs that the government is, is calling for and sponsoring, but you see calls for immigration reform, uh, attempts to uh, overturn the, the quota system that preferences some nationalities and even racial groups over others. And uh, it's a pretty fierce kind of uh, political debate um, in the early 1950s. And, and in 1952, with the McCarran-Walter Act, uh, basically the voices of restriction are able to kind of maintain a more restrictive system uh, into the early 1960s. Um, but these white mainline Protestants um, are uh, a really important part of the um, kind of activist front calling for immigration reform and saying, yeah, our immigration system is very racist. Uh, and they, they start with by looking at Asian exclusion. And when that's uh, Chinese exclusions overturned in World War II, 
And then Japanese exclusion, the final piece of Asian exclusions overturned in the early 50s. Um, that's kind of their first step. White Protestants are acknowledging, yeah, that is racist. We are targeting a group of people, restricting them based upon their racial identity. Um, but, uh, but from there, they then also begin to look at how uh, groups from South, South and Eastern Europe are also being uh, discriminated in that quota system which is something we all teach in our history classes today, but it took white Protestants and probably American culture in general a while to really understand um, maybe what those legislators were doing in the 1920s. I mean, they, they knew what they were doing. They did not want to see uh, further Jewish and Italian immigration and Eastern European immigrants, but many Americans, especially white Protestants, uh, it took them a while to kind of connect the dots, unfortunately. And it's really not until the 50s that they recognize, oh, I I did not, this is maybe one critique of myself, I don't know if that's uh, uh, fair or not, but um, one thing I suggest in the book, um, if I had it to do over again, I would want to flesh this out more, is I do think there is a connection with uh, this is kind of ties into Matthew Jacobson's work on how different immigrant groups become white or perceived as white in America. Um, by the 1950s, a lot of the um, southeastern European groups that were racial, racialized as other in the early 20th century, thinking of Italians, for instance, by the mid 20th century, you know, American culture in general kind of accepts them as white. Um, and I wonder if there is a correlation there for their acceptance and categorization as white and this growing concern for their discrimination in current immigration policy uh, in the fifties. Um, so I, Lane, does that answer your question? Or Yeah. Interesting. Future work to future articles to get to work on right there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I want to focus just a little bit on, on, uh, uh, refugees or, or displaced persons, um, as they were called. You, you note that um, there was a, a relationship going on between settlement uh, mission work, uh, legislation that was going through uh, uh, Congress during the time, as well as civil rights. I, I guess, can you explain that that a little bit? Did, did uh, the, the white Protestants you focus on, did they treat refugees differently than other types of immigrants who were, who were coming into the nation? Mm. Yes and no, in a, in a sense. Um, I would first like to point out, though, that even this issue of refugee resettlement, uh, we, we don't escape the, the issue of race and racism. Um, I, th- I think it's important to recognize that which refugee groups are the United States, is the United States really working to resettle? Uh, and it's largely European groups coming from um, uh, either Germany or um uh, yeah, other parts of war-torn uh, Europe at that time. And it definitely gets woven into this response to Soviet expansion into Eastern Europe and uh, a response to the Cold War. But these are largely European refugees. Um, now, to be clear, there are many other refugee crises around the world, uh, but I do think there is a clear favoritism to these European uh, displaced people. Uh, and kind of the assumption is that the United States government sees them as, uh, you know, in their eyes, fitting better into assimilating better into American society or more deserving based upon simply racism at this time than other um, refugee uh, uh, groups around the world. So, yeah, race is there for sure. And it's important to note who they're they're working to resettle. It's a very limited scope there. Um, 
in a very racialized scope at that. But um, I think there is a lot of kind of continuity here in terms of how they respond to displaced people and refugees. Uh, they, especially by the 1950s, are working to um, receive them, to care for them. A part of the, the resettlement program at that time involved uh, a community, a town, or a family signing up with the government. And they had to basically find the refugee family that they're sponsoring a job, housing. And it's interesting looking, there are, this is another great area for further research. Um, uh, The uh, American Baptist archives in Atlanta have literally boxes upon boxes of note cards of refugee families that were sponsored. And it's a wealth of information that speaks to these refugee families and their religious identities, uh, where they're coming from, uh, and who was sponsoring them. And when you look at some of the kind of anecdotal stories and accounts, uh, you see local church communities um, um, donating furniture. Or uh, in one case, I found a church in Newton, Massachusetts, that um, uh, I think it was in a... um, an immigrant family, they found the husband a job at a local uh, power electric company. Um, And so, uh, yeah, you see a a willingness there to um, respond to this need. uh, And you see, once again, a a marginal respect for the cultural diversity of of trying to understand these people, um, while also hoping that this kind of kind gesture of resettlement will uh, ensure these people will, you know, think seriously about joining Protestant churches once they're in the United States. So it's, it is missional still, while also being a kind of humanitarian concern uh, as well. Um, but it's it's really interesting because, I mean, you know, um, especially as we know today, refugee resettlement is a very controversial topic. And there were sources even in the 50s talking about the tension between local communities who just see refugees as people who are going to take jobs or that are they're an economic threat to Americans. And some of these more progressive white Protestant ministers are trying to counteract those arguments. And uh, probably one of the more fascinating sources I stumbled upon in the archives was a 30-minute video segment that the Methodist Church produced. And it um, basically, it's I, I compare it to um, the uh, Andy Griffith show in Mayberry. It's, it looks like the same set, basically. In fact, one of the actors uh, from the, uh, the Andy Griffith show is actually in this episode. And in this episode, you have a traveling uh, journalist or correspondent. Uh, I think he's probably like maybe Western or Eastern German coming through. And his car breaks down. And it just so happens that the local community, the local church is considering sponsoring a refugee family. But you've got this one uh, guy in the community who just sees them as a threat. Um, But he starts talking with this journalist who is a different nationality and he realizes, oh, we have a lot in common. So it's kind of a morality tell in this 30 minute episode. But in that episode, a lot of the themes, even some of the vocabulary of the social gospel are present in that ep- in that video. Uh, and it was, yeah, one of those moments where, you know, you're trudging through the archives and you stumble across something like that. And it just was like, you know, <laughs> finding gold basically in the archives. Right. Wow. So in one of your last chapters, you, you start to deal with 
sort of expanding notions of pluralism that were taking hold in the 1960s. Um, and you really turned your attention to how Protestants were really sort of activist in terms of uh certain pieces of legislation. One of the, one of the, the stories that you tell that I found really interesting was the story of the, the McCarran-Walter Act. You mentioned it earlier. I wondered if you could tell that story a little bit more in depth. Tell, tell us about that act and, uh, and sort of how Protestants reacted to that. Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the McCarran-Walter Act is passed, uh, I believe, in 1952. And it, there had been a year or so of debate in Congress. And um, the uh, Pat McCarran and um, and, uh, and Walter, um, I forget his first name, but uh, congressman from Pennsylvania, Francis Walter, uh, they are um, both very conservative. They are concerned about uh, American identity. They want to respond to problems in this kind of post-war era, but they have a very kind of white Anglo-Saxon vision for the nation. And they think liberalizing immigration policy is going to weaken American identity, American culture. Having said that, they do recognize there are some immediate problems. So, for instance, Japanese exclusion. Um, the, the final act that's passed, which is basically maintains a more restrictive status quo, it does actually overturn Japanese exclusion. You know, that's one of the, the one kind of, um, you know, maybe kind of positive things we can draw from that legislation. But the rest of the legislation largely continues um, favoring some nationalities over others and keeping a very restrictive quota system. And many uh, activists, lobbyists at the time, they knew that. In fact, there were um, other members of Congress who were advocating for more liberal reform. And many um, uh, more progressive liberal Protestant leaders were backing uh, uh another um, political alternative, another bill that was being considered, which didn't pass. And so they really saw this as kind of waging a political war to try to uh, liberalize immigration reform. And so it's it's in large part a, a lost effort um, in 52 when the McCarran-Walter Act is passed. But um, you see the uh, um, Catholic, um, Jewish, and uh Protestant Christians really begin to uh, work together to uh, advocate for immigration reform. And while it's a defeat there in 52, they gain a lot of momentum. And there's a book that came out a couple of years ago that really traces this well called Unwanted um, uh, by Dr. Marianani. Um, my apologies if I mispronounce her name, but uh, it's a really helpful text at looking at, in particular, at Italian and Jewish mobilization around immigration reform at this time. And so Protestants are by no means uh, the only voice calling for reform, uh, but uh, these mainline, more progressive Protestants are uh, jumping in and are, are working to, at first, counteract McCarran-Walter and then eventually try to overturn it or um, continue to work at uh, creating a more equal immigration system. Now, I should point out, their, their goal is to overturn an immigration system which is codified in the 1924 laws and continued in 52 with the McCarran-Walter Act, they want to overturn a system that allows for unequal quotas. So if you're coming from Britain or France uh, or Scandinavia, there are larger quotas that are allowed uh, to migrate in, a, in an 
a year on a yearly basis, as opposed to people coming from Asia or Eastern Europe. They want to level the playing field, basically, uh, and not discriminate based upon nationality. What they are not advocating for, however, is drastically increasing immigration. They don't want to invite more people. They just want to admit people on a more equal, less discriminatory basis. Uh, and that's what they're, they're really coming to work towards uh, by the 1960s. Now, the McCarran-Walter Act, it's a fascinating piece of political history uh, that overlaps with religious history. A lot of these denominations um, pr- print very interesting and elaborate pamphlets that they are working to distribute among their Protestant constituents to try to convince them to write their congressmen and push back against the McCarran-Walter Act. Um, And they're really fascinating artifacts from this period to look at in the archives. So one one final question, um, and this kind of goes back to the title of your book. One of of the themes running through is how the limited acceptance of a pluralist society really sowed the seeds of mainline Protestantism's eventual decline. Uh, can you explain that process a bit and how you describe that as, as the narrative of the book runs through? Sure. Yes. Yeah, so mainline Protestants are, uh, by the start of the 20th century, these white mainline groups that are historically traced their origins back into the 18th, you know, even sometimes 17th centuries, I'm sorry, 18th and 19th centuries, they have grown accustomed to um, largely defining American culture. Uh, and I start my book with the example of, you know, largely Protestant school prayer at the, you know, at the beginning of the century. Um, you know, that all changes by the time you get to 1970s, 1980s. Uh, there is more of a growing understanding of, yeah, we are a multicultural nation. Um, and we are a religiously diverse nation as well. And um, so over the course of the 20th century, uh, when I refer to mainline decline, I'm referring to their decline in society and culture. Um, I'll let other historians you know, sift through the numerical decline of the mainline denominations, but I'm largely speaking to their kind of cultural clout that really begins to dissipate by the end of the century. And I would argue that comes in part because they've been advocating for, um, at least by the 1950s and 60s, cultural pluralism, uh, and earlier, a form of cosmopolitanism, uh, using the vocabulary of historian David Hollinger. Um, And uh, those ideas become embraced more broadly within America. And we'll see with immigration reform in 1965, um, uh, other parts of the world are more able to immigrate to the United States. And we see um, um, important increases in people migrating from Asia or Latin America by the 70s and 80s. And you know that begins to uh, change the tenor of American culture, American identity, and more and more, more people are beginning to grapple with and understand, yeah, we are um, a nation of diversity, multiculturalism. Now, Many people, white Americans may not like that, but they're having to come to grips with that. Um, and even the the kind of cliche, you know, we're a nation of immigrants, which, you know, that is a term that originates in the 1950s and 60s debates. Um, and some historians have shown also is largely speaking to 
uh, our European immigrant heritage, but that vocabulary becomes more commonplace by the late 20th century. And so what I argue is the flip side is mainline Protestants are no longer at the helm of American uh culture and society. They're no longer really gatekeepers any longer. They have to take a step back and more fully embrace and accept the diversity that has come to really define um, the United States by the end of the 20th century. And um, yeah, not everyone, even within mainline traditions, are going to support that. In fact, I still think there is a gap between the laity and the clergy on that matter. Um, There, I think, were some progressive impulses with among the laity, but generally many of them still don't want to see increased immigration and major changes to what they perceive to be American identity, uh, even though their pastors or denominational leaders are, um, you know, fully on board with a more kind of multicultural uh, perspective. So, yeah, I, I speaking to their decline, uh, you could also make a point um, that, uh, yeah, we have um, new sources of immig- or immigration begins to um, be less of a European and more of an Asian and Latin American uh, phenomenon in the United States. And with that comes, um, we also you know, mentioned sub-Saharan Africa, uh, with that comes um, new forms of Christianity uh, that are brought with these groups of people. And I mentioned this briefly at the end, this could be another possible future project for someone out there, but uh, is looking at how the evangelicalism that is brought from uh, various immigrant groups from, say, Latin America or um, Korea or Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, how that uh, challenges uh, the kind of mainline Protestant tradition as well. Um, uh, You know, as as we know, by the 70s and 80s, with the rise of the religious right um, and the you know, 1976, the year of the evangelical, uh, evangelicals then become um, uh, important social, uh, cultural forces uh, in the United States. And these mainline Protestants really kind of take a back seat after that. And uh, I think, yeah, there is some correlation there between um, rising immigration from rising numbers of immigrants bringing their evangelical Christianity uh, and they don't quite find a home in the more kind of moderate liberal tradition in certain mainline churches. Right. Well, Dr. Pruitt, it is a, a fascinating story and a fascinating book. We thank you so much for your time today and especially for these uh, in-depth answers on this subject. Uh, if people want to follow your work, where's the best place to, to find you? Sure. Um, well, let me first just point out, uh, I uh, just really thank the New Books Network for what they do. Uh, I've been a longtime listener. I have my students uh, listen to uh, podcasts through the New Books series. And I uh, just want to thank thank you, Lane, and others in the network for what they do. That's an important, important service uh, to the academic community. Um, so uh, if you want to find my work, uh, I'm uh, active on Twitter. Uh, you can you know do a search for my name, Nicholas Pruitt. Um, I... Uh, um, you can access my book on uh, Amazon or through the, the NYU uh, press uh, page. Uh, and I uh, would be more than welcome to receive uh, emails with thoughts, um, critiques, even uh, from people who have um, either listened to the podcast or read the book. 
Excellent, excellent. Well, Nicholas Pruitt is Assistant Professor of Humanities at Eastern Nazarene College, and his book that we've discussed today is Open Hearts, Closed Doors, Immigration Reform, and the Waning of Mainline Protestantism, published by New York University Press in 2021, and uh, as Dr. Pruitt mentioned, available on Amazon or from the NYU Press uh, website. Thanks again, Dr. Pruitt, for joining us. Uh, I I hope we get to to talk about more of these projects uh, again Mm. sometime in the future. It's been a pleasure, Lane. And thank you for joining us on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Make sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcasts. We update every weekday with new interviews and content on the latest in academic and mainstream history publishing. Thanks for listening and happy reading.